I think your your approach to what you're trying to achieve with every operation, like whether you're going for clinical excellence or the perfect x-ray or, you know, some other kind of technical virtuosity, I think that is less important than remembering that at the end of your scalpel is a patient. That was Mr. Aaron Thomas, and this is the Newbie Dentist Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. This week's guest is Mr. Aaron Thomas, who is an oral maxillofacial surgeon here in Melbourne, Australia, and he is also one of the consultants or big bosses at the Royal Dental Hospital, where I'm currently working and doing my residency. During these past few months, Mr. Aaron Thomas has become a big mentor for myself and the rest of the residents and is someone who is very passionate about the field and also very open to teaching and sharing his experiences and expertise. In this week's episode, we talk about the specialty of oral and maxillofacial surgery, what it takes to get in, what it takes to get through the program, and what is required to become a successful surgeon. We also spend some time looking at the history and chatting about the future of the specialty and where he anticipates the field going over the next few years and also within his career. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode and I'm sure anyone listening who is interested in OMFS as a specialty or just wants to learn more about the specialty will get some invaluable insight into what it takes to become an oral maxillofacial surgeon here in Australia and similarly in other parts of the world. This week's episode is brought to you by Ivoclar Vivident. Ivoclar is one of the world's leading and most innovative dental companies, offering a comprehensive range of products and systems that provide you with new opportunities in dentistry. For even a more aesthetic and efficient result and better dental care for your patients, be sure to check out Ivoclar, their academy, and the products and services that they offer at ivoclarvivident.com.au. Making people smile is what they do. Without further delay, I hope you enjoyed this amazing interview with one of my mentors, Mr. Aaron Thomas. Welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, giving a voice to young clinicians worldwide. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to be the dental industry leader in in-depth, informative and motivational interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians, academics and experts. With your host, Dr. Omid Azami. So I'm uh, pleased to be joined by Mr. Aaron Thomas, who is one of our consultants at the Royal Dental Hospital. Aaron, uh, I've had the chance to work with you and you know, learn from you over this past few months at the dental hospital, which has been a great experience for me. And I'm super excited mm-hmm. to have you on and get to explore the specialty with you and talk about you know, a bit of the past or the history of MaxVax, the journey of what it entails to become an oral maxillofacial surgeon, and then also looking a bit into the future and seeing what friends you foresee for the profession coming up. So thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Amit. So before we get into the, the past and the history of it, normally how I like to start these things is a bit of an origin story. So if you can just kind of tell us about yourself a little bit, sort of like where you grew up, why you kind of chose to get into healthcare, and then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, so I was actually born in Singapore, um, but my family um, migrated to Perth in uh, sunny Western Australia when I was six months old. Uh, so I was sort of uh, brought up in Perth, um, which is like a pretty, you know, sort of relaxed and idyllic lifestyle growing up, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed. You know, I come from a pretty big family. 
um, four siblings, um, sorry, three siblings, and myself as four kids. Uh, and my parents, my dad's a GP, a uh, medical yeah. doctor, and my mum's a teacher. Um, so I think I was always, you know, drawn to medicine and science. Um, I was always fascinated with what my dad did. Yeah. Um, like I love listening to his stories and he did lots of sort of, um, you know, consults in the family room when we had <laughs> little aches and pains and things and I was always pretty fascinated. Um, so I went through uh, schooling in Perth and um, uh, finished year 12 and uh, the TE exams as they called it back then. Um, I applied for sort of a, a few different things and I got into dentistry at UWA, okay, um, nice. which then I think it's now postgrad, but then it was a five year undergrad degree. Yeah. Um, so I got started, um, in UWA dental school. That was, I think the second or third year that they had their beautiful new building, the oral health center of WA, which is really cool. Um, and so I was really enjoying uh, dental school. And then in fourth year, I think it was fourth year out of the five years, I did my first max fax rotation. Yeah. Um, and sort of shout out to Professor Ray Williamson, who um, was sort of the head of MaxVax there. And I did a couple of um, theatre sessions with him at the Royal Perth Hospital. And that really sort of inspired me. And he was a great um, encouragement. Um, I think he actually, a few years ago, moved to Ireland now. So I don't think he's in Perth anymore. Um, so anyway, once I figured out what MaxVax was, um, I dug into it a bit. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And um then I found out that you had to do like medicine and <laughs> junior doctor years and surgery yeah. training. And, uh, but it's one of those things where um, that, that sort of long journey, I think, isn't really a big deal if it's what you really want to do. And if you're inspired and passionate enough about, about anything, mm -hmm. um, the time you put in is fruitful and enjoyable and, and really worthwhile. And so I decided pretty much from fourth year that that's what I'd pursue. And um, yeah, I'm very fortunate that everything's worked out pretty uh pretty smoothly worked out quite well uh I'll, yeah. we'll get into that in a lot more detail when we kind of go through the whole journey a little bit what i was hoping to start with was maybe a bit of the history of max Axe and especially I, I remember one of the like stories that i always i won't forget is during uh like dental school lectures they're talking about like the lafort like osteotomies and fractures and french guy like throwing like rocks or like throwing the skulls across the room to kind of see the fracture lines in the maxilla and things so mm -hmm. I mean, obviously like a lot of medicine has these like cool history and and how things were discovered or developed. What's some of the, you know, like landmark things or events that kind of shaped MaxVax as a profession? Yeah, look, um, you know, I don't profess to be a historian, um, <laughs> but uh, I certainly know that the origins of oral and maxillofacial surgery are rooted both in dentistry and medicine. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, we will never forget sort of our, our dual origins. Um, dentistry wise, uh, it's got a lot to do with, um, just simple extractions, removing teeth, um, as sort of, uh, you know, rotary technology developed and drills became available and things like that. Um, removing impacted wisdom teeth, mm -hmm. uh, sort of required, um, certain advanced skills in oral surgery and intraoral surgery. Um, and the oral surgery side of maxillofacial was sort of born from that. And then sort of the biggest stuff that we do in MaxFax really has a lot to, we really have to thank um, colleagues in sort of plastics and trauma surgery, particularly in the wars, yeah. um, like the world wars really. Um, surgeons like uh, McIndoe and Gillies, um, who are sort of originally more plastic surgeons, did a lot of work in facial trauma and facial reconstruction from war injuries. Um, and they sort of identified the the key link between medicine and surgery and, and dentistry and, you know, dentist expertise in the face and the teeth. 
so it really Max Fax in Australia anyway sort of took off more towards the middle of uh, the 20th century. Um, if anyone's interested, actually, one of our um, very eminent professors of maxillofacial surgery in Adelaide, Professor Alistair Goss, did a really good deep dive into the history of Max Fax oh, in nice. Australia. And yeah. he, he wrote a book about it really? um, and published an article in the ADJ in, I think, 2018. So oh, okay. have a look at that. But um, in terms of some landmark events, there's been some giants of our specialty, uh, mainly in Europe and America. Like you said, you know, Rene Lafort, who uh, <laughs> discovered the classic Lafort uh, classification of mid-face fractures. And we sort of co-opted that to do our osteotomies as well. Hugo Obergieser, sort of the father of orthognathic surgery. Branemark, the father of dental implantology and osteointegration. And in terms of the osteotomies that we do, like corrective jaw surgery, people like um, Epker and Hansak and Dalpont, who did modifications of the standard BSSO, all that stuff sort of developed through the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And modern maxillofacial surgery has probably been sort of in the worldwide consciousness from about the 90s onwards, I think. Yeah. It's crazy, like in the grand scheme of medicine, it's like a relatively young kind of specialty. It just shows like how quickly things are kind of progressing in, in the field and how the scope and I guess that comes back to some of the, you know, I have, you know, from your stories and other stories that you hear there's there's always like that in, within the hospital saying there's a lot of specialists who do similar types of work. And I think Max Axe is emerging as, you know, being a leader in, in those areas because of the training and mm-hmm. because of the history of it. So I think it's cool that there's a lot of potential for growth within the specialty still, definitely by the, by Absolutely, the of it. Yeah. Excellent. So let's uh, talk about the journey. A lot of the listeners to the podcast are, you know, in dental school or, you know, new grads who are still kind of trying to figure things out, whether to specialize, not to specialize. So, mm. you know, you mentioned when you're in fourth year of dental school, that was kind of your first kind of real exposure to, to MaxVax and you had a good mentor and encouragement to kind of go for it. Definitely a long road, uh, especially in, in Australia compared <coughs> to maybe like in Canada or in the US. So I'm just curious, you know, if you can just tell us, like, you know, after you kind of got interest in the specialty, so anyone who's listening now who has special interest in the specialty, what are some, like, the key steps or decisions that you made that you look back on now and you're like, yeah, that was the right move I did to kind of progress into becoming a, a Max Max? I think the, the, number, the number one thing that, um, you know, I tell people who are interested in Max Max is um, you, just need, you need staying power and you need to expect that... Um, you might need to sort of go through a couple of different avenues and, you know, this door might close, but another door will open and things like that because there are certainly steps you need to take um, to be an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Um, in Australia, I think as you sort of alluded to before, it's a bit different in um, other countries, but in Australia, as I'm sure uh, most people know, it's a dual qualified specialty. So you need um, a dental degree and a medical degree. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, undergrad, postgrad, lateral entry, whatever, it doesn't matter. You just need... Um, like my dental degree is a BDSC, but you might be a BDS or a DDS or whatever, and a medical degree. Mine's an MBBS, but now there's a lot of MDs and things going around. Um, so you really need to commit yourself early, I think, to getting your second degree. Um, and yeah, most of the listeners uh, who are dentists and dental students, that'll mean going, uh, finding a way to get to medical school. So for myself, um, yeah, in fourth year, I figured out I want to do MaxVax. So I finished dental school the following year. Um, and I decided that I wanted to, instead of, you know, going into private practice, like a lot of my friends were and, um, getting settled in, um, in a nice practice and things. Um, I did a job 
in public service, like as a fly-in, fly-out dentist to rural and remote uh, communities, which um, developed my skills in extractions and emergency dentistry and things like that and um, was useful on my CV, more useful than, you know, being in a city practice doing, you know, Crown and Bridge and things probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was fortunate the following year uh, I moved to Adelaide because I was accepted to be uh, the house surgeon, what, which is, I'm not sure if that's a position they have anymore, but the house surgeon in their oral maxillofacial surgery department. So essentially running their extraction clinic for the final yeah. year students, which again was really good that's experience. Amazing, like, yeah. yeah, not too dissimilar to the sort of thing you're doing actually. Like it's sort of being a, like a, a resident dentist type thing in the, um, in the oral surgery department. And then the following year, I did get lateral entry into medical school as well as starting as a junior registrar at the University of Adelaide. So that I think really is sort of a watershed moment when it's kind of, it's not quite the point of no return, but it's certainly <laughs> the point of progression when you start your yeah. second degree. And so that, that was really cool. And I, with lateral entry, we uh, did the final four years of the six year medical degree. The first year was combined as a MaxFax junior registrar and medical school. And the last three years was just medical school, but I stayed in touch with the unit yeah. That's another important thing when you're doing a second degree, try and stay in touch with the MaxFax unit or MaxFax people. Um, so I did some on call and things like that. And then once finishing my medical degree in Australia, you need to do two years as a junior doctor, um, one year as an intern, like, like any doctor who finishes medical school, <laughs> and then one year of uh, what they call surgery in general where you rotate through allied specialties like I did uh, ENT, neurosurgery, emergency, and I think paediatric surgery. And then, yeah, after that, I was selected onto the advanced training program here in Victoria. Perfect. So, so just to, for overview for people listening, so, you know, either you can do, you know, more, do you think now it's, it's still dentistry as the first degree is the more common route or are you seeing more and more people do medicine first and then do dentistry? I think dentistry first is still more common, mm -hmm. but certainly it's getting more popular with um, the other way around medical first people. For example, just in my four years of um, registrar training here in Melbourne, at least two of the medical registrars that I've worked with mm -hmm. um, in different hospitals have been inspired by coming to theater with us and seeing the cool stuff we do. And they've That's gone awesome. back to dental school. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of on that track as well. So it's getting more popular for doctors as well. So people in dental school, generally you recommend, you know, when they graduate to do some sort of hospital based, uh, preferably like oral surgery based job, or um, even maybe a little bit more like rural jobs, they might get a little bit more surgical experience uh, and try and get into that second degree as soon as possible. Because the longer you guess you put it off, the, the trickier it gets and the more likely you are to maybe just put it off altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a long path. Like I tell people, um, it took me 17 years from my first day of dental school to my last day as an advanced <laughs> surgical trainee, yeah. which is a long time. So yeah, anything you can do to progress along the path is is good and yes you're right that hospital-based jobs or public hospital jobs are probably more beneficial in your cv like you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with private practice of course mm -hmm. um, but just be aware that um that perhaps isn't as favorable on a cv for an application you know a lot of people would probably just listening were already like you know know the dual degree side of it but they may not have the insight into like the actual uh, oral maxillofacial surgery like program um like what those years entail What's like the progression like? Can you tell us like kind of year by year, kind of like a rough breakdown of what the actual specialty training is like? Well, I guess once you have both degrees, you need to have done, like I said, sort of an internship and a one year as a surgical resident, and then you apply um, to be accepted into a program. So the programs are all, it's governed by the RACDS, 
yeah. Royal Australasian College of Dental Surgeons, like all the other um, dental specialties. And the programs it, themselves are state-based. So there are programs in uh, WA, Queensland, Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales and New Zealand, so six programs. And so once you're eligible, so once you've done all your junior, uh, junior doctor years and got both degrees and things, there's a centralised interview process, um, usually in Sydney at the college offices. I don't know what's yeah. happening this year, obviously, <laughs> due to COVID, yeah. from my Zoom or something. And it's a pretty gruelling day because you're there and you interview with all six states, sort of one after another. So it's sort yeah. of like an hour or more of like just being grilled. Um, so it's quite intense. But then once you are accepted into a, uh, a program, then that's where you're based for the four years. It's possible to transfer between states, but it's sort of not common. Actually, that's another point. You've got to be prepared to move. Like I did, as you, as you would have figured out, I did uh, dentistry in Perth. Then I moved east to Adelaide for medical school. Now I moved east again to Melbourne for my training. Yeah. I'll probably end up being a consultant in New Zealand. <laughs> no, probably not. But anyway, you've got to be prepared to move. Yeah. Um, then in terms of once you are on training, it's a four-year training program. So you have four years as an accredited registrar. Um, and if you don't get in... After, if you do the interviews or even don't do the interviews and you don't get a training position, there are a number of what's called um, unaccredited or service registrar positions in yeah. maxillofacial surgery around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple in Victoria, a couple in uh, Queensland, a couple in New Zealand, probably a couple in New South Wales. Um, and those are good stepping stones as well. Um, but once you get on to the training program, it's four years and it follows a pretty, um, what you would expect from any training program when you start you're sort of a junior registrar the first couple of years. You, Depending on what hospitals you rotate through, you'd expect it to sharpen your skills in dental alveolar surgery, uh, sort of basic trauma like fractured mandibles, um, dental alveolar infection. In your last couple of years, you're more doing primary operating and things like uh, orthognathic surgery, TMJ surgery, pathology, um, and oncology, um, all well supervised by consultants. Yeah. No, it's, 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 you know, really, you know, when I see what you guys do, you, you know, sometimes we go through cases and stuff on your, on your phones and things and that the like, advanced level of surgical stuff that you guys do with part of the scope of MaxVax compared to like, you know, even the dental ovular stuff we do is, it seems like, you know, it's like a huge growth, like growth curve there to like get to those bigger cases and do those comfortably. And I was asking, mm. you know, it was like the first time you did a case like that by yourself, like the, the, the feeling of that must've been pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. And it's a funny thing. Like I quite distinctly remember the first time I did a fractured mandible by myself, which is sort of pretty basic stuff really. And, you know, now I can do it with my eyes closed, but it was a pretty big deal. I think I was a second year registrar and, um, you know, I told the consultant what was happening and he was like, yeah, no problem. Go ahead. And so I was there and starting to do the operation that I'd done many times before but not with nobody watching. Yeah. And you almost feel like whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, anxiety or nervousness or like imposter syndrome or something, yeah. you're like, you know, I'm doing this for real for the first time. What if something goes wrong? And, you know, but you've got to put all that away and yeah. you trust in your training. And, um, yeah, it's a great feeling when you can do an operation start to finish by yourself. It's um, quite euphoric. Yeah, definitely. And just, I, I love the, just the environment of being in theater is a really cool experience. And that's something that I'll, I think I've told you a story before, just like being in dental school and coming in to like observe and you kind of just feel like you're like in some like alternate universe. <laughs> you come back out and like into the normal world. You're like, do you know what I just like saw in there or like did in there in your case? Like, uh, in this, uh, it's awesome. I think it's one of the highlights of the, being a surgeon. Like definitely. 
what I'm, what I'm kind of, you know, been really interested in over the past few episodes of interviews that I've done, kind of like a theme that I'm trying to you know, t- like wrap my head around is like performance in terms of, you know, mindset, like, you know, within any specialty, you know, in basketball, there's going to be like the LeBron James or in soccer, there's going to be like the Cristiano Ronaldo. And there's always like that standard curve of, you know, people who are like, obviously I have a baseline level of talent or work ethic to get to that level. Then within any specialty, there's people that kind of excel. What do you put that down to in, in such a competitive field like surgery? Is it people who you are able to like, maybe like have different values and their values mostly work and they want to like, you know, prioritize becoming a excellent surgeon and research and everything at the cost of maybe other hobbies or things in life or like how do you how do you see that in terms of within your specialty people you said to do like do things to move their specialty forward versus you know just good dentists that or surgeons that do good work day in day out uh, how do you see that curve in in the specialty yeah look um you're quite right that anyone who makes it you know to my level you know finishes training and is now a specialist has a baseline level of um dedication like i said staying power is so important and and you know talent like hand skills and things like that yeah but if you ask me what i think sort of differentiates the the good from the great i think your your approach to what you're trying to achieve with every operation like whether you're going for clinical excellence or the perfect x-ray or you know some other kind of technical virtuosity i think that is less important than remembering that at the end of your scalpel is a patient. Mm-hmm. And I've told you guys, not, I don't think you specifically, but like if you're the residents and stuff like that, it's so easy to focus on the technical side of things and cutting the perfect flap and sectioning the tooth perfectly, or, you know, in Max Facts, like putting the plates perfectly and getting the bite just right. But I really, really think that what pushes me and pushes other surgeons to be our very best and to do our very best is to think, what if that was my father on the table or my mother or my wife or my child? If you have that level of buy-in in what you're doing, not because it's about blowing your own trumpet or showing off your awesome post-op x-rays, but if it's like, this is what I would want done to my family member, I think that would re- that's what really pushes people to be great. And I've seen that and I've experienced that myself when there's been times when you're doing an emergency operation, it's three o'clock in the morning, you just want to get home and sleep. You're going to have to be back here for, for a ward round in three hours. And you're like, oh, you know, that wound, I could probably close it with two stitches. But I've had, I've had that and I've had to check myself and say, look, if it was me, I would want to do, or if it was my wife, I'd want to do this properly and mm. put in four sutures and get that, get that margin just exactly where it needs to be. And so when you push yourself in that way to achieve the best for your patient, the skills will follow. Because if, if there's you who does your very best for the patient every time, and you put in four sutures every time, whereas your colleague who, you know, is more interested in, in just getting it done quickly or whatever and puts in two sutures, yeah. over the period of a year, you would have put in hundreds more sutures than them <laughs> and your technique will be better yeah. and your knots will be flatter and you will be more efficient. So, yeah, look, maybe it's, maybe it's a bit, um, you know, rose-coloured glasses or whatever or cheesy to say, but I think the thing that will different, differentiate you from your peers will be keeping things focused on the patient and getting the best result for them. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And I think that extends to anything, you know, even a dentist is the same, just doing your own like fillings or at some point when you're by yourself, you don't have that person over your shoulder who's like holding you accountable to like a level that they expect. So it's up to you to maintain that level. And I think, you know, tying it back to like, if this was my family member or, 
a child and I, this is how I, I would treat them and just applying that to every patient is just like a really e- like a not an easy way but a good like hack to kind of make sure you do like a good yeah. level of work every time uh, I think yeah. that's great advice for anyone in, in any line of work really all right so I'm interested in some like war stories I think you know I, I'm a big like David Goggins has like this uh have you heard of like David Goggins is like his ultra marathoner? Yeah, like yeah. yeah, Navy SEAL. So he, he has this like analogy of like, you know, uh, cookies in a cookie jar. So anytime he's like going through a hard something, you know, doing something hard, he has like this stuff that he has in the back of his mind where he can like draw on those experiences and things. What are some of those like cookie uh, stories during like residency or uh, when you're registered that you're just like, like you said, the 3 a.m. like traumas and things. Like when has it been like really tough and you're just like questioning everything and you kind of got through it and you're like you know, stronger because of it? That was a good question. Like, so what are the sort of things that I've seen and done that sort of keep me going when I'm otherwise might be a bit flat sort of thing? Yeah. Like that motivate you. Like I, everything I've done the 17 years has been worth it. Like I'm going to do this now or. Hmm. Well, I, I certainly have an interest in uh, pediatric maxillofacial and uh, craniofacial surgery. Um, and so I remember uh, when I was registered at the Royal Children's Hospital, one of the, my very, um, favorite cases that I've done, uh, was, um, a girl who was about 10 years old, um, who had, or who has uh, Cruzon syndrome, which is, um, a craniosynostosis and sort of mid-phase hypoplasia syndrome. Um, and so since she had a very, very flat mid-face and sort of, um, sunken in orbits and sunken in forehead and things like that. And so we did, um, Lafort three distraction procedure which is pretty crazy. So we sort of did a coronal flap, so flip the lid as we call it, and we <laughs> peel back the scalp and yeah. um, had to make some sort of cuts in the, um, some bone cuts in the forehead and um, then made skin cuts to make cuts around her orbit, made intraoral cuts to mobilize the maxilla. And we uh, placed a distraction device, which is, um, you might've heard of it in dentistry. Um, distraction osteogenesis is the principle of very slowly pulling uh, two pieces of bone apart and new bone form, new bone forms in between them. Um, and so that was, it was like an all day case. And at the end of the day, like she was all at the end of the, when we stitched up, she was all swollen, you know, couldn't see out of her eyes. And it was like, Oh my goodness, what have we done to this poor girl? Like, um, but then over the coming sort of couple of weeks that she was in hospital as, uh, the swelling receded and we started to move the distractors and the mid-face started to move forward just the change in her uh, appearance and her function, like her ability to chew and swallow and even talk, um, her breathing, because that really opens up the upper airways, things like that. Um, and by the time, you know, everything fully settled down and a few months later when we removed the distractors and everything, I, looked, I remember looking at the before and after photos and thinking, wow, this is, this is really life-changing stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I love taking out wisdom teeth and putting in implants <laughs> and stuff like that as well. But um, that's not, you know, going to keep me going at 3am in the morning, whereas stuff like removing life-changing surgery, like this, this 10-year-old girl looks and feels and acts completely different now and has a whole new lease on life and will live a long and happy life, um, at least partly because of what we've done for her. Um, so that's something I really remember. Um, the other case that probably springs to mind quickly is quite a well-known case in Victoria of, um, it was a couple of years ago, uh, 2016, I think it was of a chap who gave himself a chainsaw injury. Yeah. I remember hearing uh, that in the news. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was in the news. This is when I was a registrar at the Royal Melbourne hospital. Um, it was on a, it was, uh, on a Friday, I think it was when we'd finished a long day of operating and we were called to the trauma theater and we heard this story about this chap who 
an accident, you know, a chainsaw had kicked back and he'd got himself right across the face like this. And yeah. his whole, we've got these whole face was just laid open, teeth and blood and bone everywhere. His neck was swelling up before our eyes. So we had to like, we get in there quickly, do an emergency tracheostomy. Um, then once that stabilized the airway, we had to, um, to bride away all the dead tissue and try and reconstruct things as best we could. And um, he, I think, underwent several surgeries and was in hospital for a month or so. And again, I've got photos on my phone next to each other of the before and after. And it's, it's just crazy. It's incredible. Um, the sort of uh, difference you can make in an acute traumatic situation where this chap was probably a couple of millimetres away from death. You know, if it was a bit deep, it would have gone through his carotid artery, we would have bled out there and then. We would have never, he would have never made it to hospital. Um, but that's really, that's a, like a hallmark trauma case that I don't think I'll ever forget. It was really cool to be involved in things like that. That's awesome, man. Yeah, those, those cases are the ones that I guess will push you through when the days are a bit long and you're just a bit tired and yeah. you look back and you're like, oh man, like, uh, when you make that much difference in someone's life, it's, uh, it's definitely enough motivation to keep you going. So uh, moving on to, you know, once you finish your training, uh, when you enter the workforce, uh, obviously there's a lot of options. There's a fellowship route that most people go on. Um, I think that's what you're exploring as well. Uh, a lot of people, you know, go back to just go to private practice and then maybe set up a practice and work by themselves or join a group or uh, maybe rotate through other private clinics and work with uh, GPs where they get referred in-house. What do you see as some of like the common like trends in that in terms of employment and things for surgeons once they finish their training? I think, as you alluded to, um, f- further fellowship training or subspecialization is sort of going to be going to be more and more common. You know, you need to be able to be a general maxillofacial surgeon and um, perform all the general operations, but certainly having higher level subspecialty skills uh, will be very valuable. So I think there'll be more and more people, excuse me, who would uh, pursue fellowships, particularly overseas. Um, Something else I think is really important to consider is uh, sort of where you spend your time in your practice in terms of public versus private, Um, because... Public hospital jobs, I think, are really useful and really valuable and they're really good service to give a bit back to communities that are giving you so much and hospitals are giving you so much. So for myself, I certainly want a public appointment. But MaxFax is still, you know, it's not as big a specialty as something like orthopedics or neurosurgery or something. So it's, it can be hard in some cities where there are a lot of surgeons to find uh, public appointments. Yep. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's something that we as a specialty need to work on is raising awareness the general public and in our hospital systems about you know who we are and what we do so that we get more funding and more FTE and that there are more consultant positions available in the public hospitals because um, in places like the UK, I think parts of the US, for example, MaxFax is a very, very prominent and key surgical specialty in these big public hospitals. And in yeah. fact, the definition, sort of the global definition of a level one trauma centre you need, you know, neurosurgery, general surgery, plastic surgery, all the stuff, and you need maxillofacial surgery nice, because yeah. particularly our our expertise in uh, facial trauma, particularly bony trauma, is is key in managing multi-trauma patients. Um, so in terms of trends, I would really like to see in Australia, MaxFax sort of get even more ground and become more prominent in the public hospital system because that will give us more opportunities to train registrars, you know, more public hospital positions means you can have more registrars. Yeah. Um, and I think personally, like, I think the more people that join us and get involved, the better, like I'm not interested in being protectionist or anything like that, you know, <laughs> everyone's welcome, you know? Yeah. They're willing to put in the work to get there. Then, uh, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Seems like 
I mean, I don't, I don't know to, I mean, you can speak on this more as the previous generations of MaxX, if they were so keen on fellowships and things, but I think with you guys and your cohorts going through and being so dedicated to get these like further training and specialties, I think bringing that knowledge and skill set back to the hospitals will obviously like help grow the MaxX as a specialty as well. And I think that'll mm-hmm. really make a big difference in what, I guess, what you're trying to achieve throughout your career is just uh, getting more prominence within the hospital setting for the, for the specialty. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, with general dentistry, a lot of the trends have been like technologies being a big role, uh, you know, minimally invasive is a big thing in, in all of medicine, healthcare. Where do you see, you know, surgical procedures going um, within the specialty of MaxVax? Even, you know, done to ovular side, I don't know, it's been pretty, the technology hasn't changed much over the past like hundreds of years, I guess, but uh, yeah. anesthetic, anesthetics helped, but uh, where, where do you see some stuff where some areas where there's a lot of room for improvement through technology or through other developments that might come up over the next uh, few years? Well, something that's sort of taking off now has been around for probably five years and it's taking off now quite heavily in MaxVax is what we'll call VSP, virtual surgical planning. A lot of dentists will be, dentists will be familiar with that uh, from dental implantology. But for us, we do a lot of corrective jaw surgery or orthognathic surgery, particularly complex cases like biomaxillary osteotomies, asymmetries, you know, combined condyle pathology. We do a lot of that planning virtually using uh, just a, a CBCT, a good quality CBCT and some dental impressions and study models. Um, the technicians and various companies marry them together and we can, it's pretty cool. They're sort of, um, we essentially do virtual surgery, you know, put the cuts here, put the cuts there, twist it this way, you know, or bring the maxilla forward just a couple more millimeters and things like that. Um, and then, Combined with that, we can then either have printed out custom, essentially surgical guides, um, what we call splints, to put the teeth in together, and when we know the teeth are right, then the bones are right. Or even, even better, is custom plates. Um, so the plates, particularly for the maxilla with orthognathic surgery, the plates are such that they only fit in one place. Um, yeah. They're already pre-bent and pre-formed, and so you pre-drill the holes, you cut the maxilla, you move it to where it fits the plate, then you know that it's right. Um, and there's also a lot of that kind of 3D planning that's going on in oncology, particularly um, mandibular SCCs requiring segmental uh, mandibulectomies. Yeah, we can we custom customize cutting guides so that we cut the quite precise margins. And then when we do, when I saw uh, various reconstructive colleagues plumb in something like a fibular free flap, an osteocutaneous vascularized free flap, he's got cutting guides with that as well. And in fact. I've been involved in a couple of cases where, which is really cool, uh, with the 3D planning, we actually put in dental implants yeah. into the fibula at the time of surgery. Wow. In fact, I've got photos of me putting in dental <laughs> implants into the fibula in the leg. So before <laughs> we've even cut the bone off the leg. That's so it looks crazy. crazy. I'm putting yeah. implants into someone's <laughs> leg, right? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we osteotomize the fibula and implant it into the jaw. Yeah, And that's, that's incredible for these these cancer patients have such a heavy burden of quality of life and function you know speech um swallowing eating and traditionally you know by and large most pretty much every patient who uh, needs a mandibular resection will probably get radiotherapy afterwards so these poor patients have their operation have their radiation then we wait six months and then it becomes 12 months and then they may or may not get a denture that probably won't fit yeah. And then they might get some implants. Whereas if we can put the implants in from the very start, then as soon as the radiation is done and everything's settled, they can get a prosthesis made. 
In fact, for some benign cases, like for example, an ameloblastoma, they might still get a segment or a section, but if we know they're not getting radiation afterwards because it's a benign pathology, mm-hmm. uh, we can get uh, a prosthesis or a prosthodontist to come into theatre, take impressions, and essentially, like an all-on-four type, you know, yeah. teeth-in-a-day type concept, they can wake up yeah. with teeth, which That's is amazing. incredible. So I really think VSP, virtual, virtual surgical planning, um, certainly myself as a young consultant, um, you know, I use it for orthodontic surgery and really I want to use it for everything that I possibly can going forward because the technology's there. It's great. It's been validated. Um, and I think you'd be silly not to use it really. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, I mean, I know in, in general dentistry or with like implantology, there's like that always debate of, you know, if you're, if you don't develop surgical skills, like freehanding implants and just rely on like surgical guides and things, um, mm-hmm. can take away from a surgical skill. Obviously, you know, by the time you guys are getting to like the virtual, virtual, uh, virtual planning, your, you know, develop your surgical skills, but do you, do you, like, what do you think about that debate of like lowering surgical ability by like relying on technology so heavily? Yeah, look, I think the surgical skill and ability is still pretty similar, but I think where people can get like a bit of a bugbear is they can, they can say, look, having everything so pre-planned takes away from the the intraoperative artistry, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, the, the Picasso or the Leonardo da Vinci touch of, you know, oh, actually I don't want to move the maxilla up just a touch more. I know it wasn't in my plan, but now that I'm in the moment, you know, I think this is right. And look, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Um, I can see like, it's pretty cool being able to on the fly on table, make adjustments and then post-op be very happy with your results. But still, I think, um, again, if your focus is on getting the best result for the patient, and you believe the technology and you believe that the records you've taken and given the technician are adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, my eyes can't measure as well as a computer. I don't know about other people's, but mine can't. So I put quite a lot of trust into, um, into that technology. And that's not to say that I'll never change a plan on the table. I'm sure, I'm sure I will someday. Um, but I, don't, I think it's a worthy trade-off to give away a little bit of, um, yeah, that artistic side to, to be confident that you're putting the plates and putting the jaws in the position that they need to be. What about in terms of, I think with, and just on the same topic there, you know, if, if the plan, if, if you're in mid procedure and the procedure is not going as planned based on the planning, you don't have the skills to you know, amend that plan or like think on the fly, then I think you might get in trouble as well. I think that's what the debate is for like the, the new dentists, you know, like getting into implants and stuff. If they're like purely reliant on the guide or the search, the 3d planning, if, procedures doesn't go to plan on the day then they don't have the skill to like backtrack and correct that um Mm. so i think it's important to like not be overly just like reliant on that as well to wrap things up i wanted to see if you have any just you know if someone's listening right now and they're kind of you know in dental school or a new grad and they're you know not loving general dentistry and want to specialize or have always had that itch to kind of specialize just in specialty as a whole and then obviously more specifically to uh, omfs what's your like your not your pitch not trying to sell the specialty but What's your recommendations for them to pursue what they want to do and, and actually you know, go through with it? Yeah, look, all I can say is it's immensely rewarding. I think it's immensely rewarding anyway, and I have no regrets at all about the path that I've been down. Like it is a long path, but I'm, you know, I'm mid-30s. I'm not, I'm not that old. Uh, now that I've finished, I'll still have a 30-year career ahead of me, which is pretty reasonable. But it's got to be something that, that you really want to do. Because when you're, when you're sort of halfway through or, or more, if you discover then that it's not really what you don't really want to do max facts, then you're already 10 years down the track and you've wasted a lot of your time. It's hard, so yeah. there is, um, and there's a lot of opportunity cost as well, particularly 
um, when you see your colleagues in in dental school who when you're you've gone back and done your second degree and you're you're like a lowly intern or something your mates who went into private practice like own two or three practices and you know are driving a Porsche and whatever like <laughs> and you know you're still driving a Toyota Corolla or things like that like <laughs> it's important to keep your eyes I think on the on the on the long game yeah uh, which is that at the end of how many years it takes you'll have a fulfilling career uh, in which you you can really change the lives of your patients in a in a way that you can't in general dentistry probably but look, I don't say that to disparage general dentistry at all like I I am truly equally proud of my sort of background in both dentistry and medicine and I can't be a oral and maxillofacial surgeon without both of those um those things in my background but yeah if you had to ask me I would say max fax is the best specialty of yeah. <laughs> I'm curious you know when, when you when you go to a dinner party and someone asks you like oh like what do you do for work and when they find out you have both a dental degree and a med degree, what's like the common reaction you get? <laughs> oh man, like my parents and siblings who've known about this forever still don't even know how to explain to people. But yeah, so when I tell people, um, you know, that what I do, they're like, oh, so the number one question is, I oh, say, so how many years were you at university? And I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, 10 years. And like 10 years, you know, you could have been doing so, which is a long time. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but when I, I usually kind of, I say I'm an oral maxillary surgeon and I say just a couple of the key things that we do to give a general scope. So I say, I'm a, you know, I'm a doctor and dentist and a surgeon and oral maxillofacial surgery is my specialty. So we deal, deal with things like uh, broken jaws and cancers um, of the head and neck region um, and problems with the jaw joints and also things like taking out wisdom teeth and implants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like sort of a few key points that people <laughs> will remember. And then most people kind of get it like, yeah. Um, cause you know, in Australia, in Australia, every so often, um, in the news, there's a picture of like a footy player who's been punched in the face or whatever. And they put up yeah. the x-ray with a plate and I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of thing I do. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, not to put you on the spot, but in terms of, you know, you said you were hoping to have a nice long 30 year or so career. What are some like goals or aspirations that you have for yourself of what you want to accomplish? Well, I actually, <laughs> I actually don't even know yet what city I'll finish up in because I'm sort of just finished my training. I'm looking to fellowship and things, but essentially wherever I end up or my family ends up, um, something that's very important to me is work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I do want to have a a career that allows me to both be um, sort of an excellent surgeon, both in the public and the private sectors, uh, but also gives me a little bit of flexibility such that I can, you know, spend a lot of time, uh, with my family on the weekends and, you know, yeah. go away for holidays during school holidays and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's probably my number one priority in terms of, um, what I actually want to do with my career, like the work side of things. Like I said, I'm really quite passionate about public hospitals and providing an excellent service to public hospitals. So I really want to, um, have a strong and a good amount of, um, time invested in public service, being a public hospital consultant, because I, I think in a country like Australia, there's, there's just no excuse for public hospital patients to not receive the same standard of care that you would give your private hospital patients just because yeah. they're not paying for it. Um, and an equal portion of being in public hospitals as well as serving the patients is teaching. So that's something else I really want in my career, as you would know. I mean, You're you an know, excellent teacher. You've been, <laughs> well, thank you. That's very kind of you. But I was going to say, as you know, um, like I really enjoy um, teaching of all levels, you know, students to, you know, residents like yourself to, to registrars. Um, I think there was kind of this old 
the old fashioned way of thinking is like the surgeons, the consultants like up here and they've got all this knowledge and like they're kind of like these Kings and you just say yes, sir. And things, but that's not my style. Like I'm very happy to share my knowledge and um, expertise such as it is with anyone of any level. So I'd really enjoy passing on my um, tips and tricks to the, the younger generations. For sure. And I think that creates a really good culture and encourages people to like, who maybe be on defense to actually go pursue it. I think if you have a bad encounter with a, a surgeon or something, and it kind of puts you off if you're not too sure about it. So I think having this positive, like sharing or more open communication with your like, you know, uh, juniors really kind of helps them and keeps them motivated and things like that, which I think helps. Um, lastly, the most important question, I guess, is uh, who do you have for the uh, NBA title this year? <laughs> Good question, man. Um, it's all turned around this year. Your raps are looking the goods though. Yep. The first round. <laughs> um, I actually wouldn't put it past the raps to repeat, i got to say. Oh, man, this is big. Okay. <laughs> even, even without Kawhi, I mean... Yeah. Like, you know, Fred Van Vliet and stuff. Like, these guys are really stepping up. Pascal Siakam will come to the party. Yeah. Um, so they'd probably be my pick out of the East. With uh, Giannis, of course, and the Bucks sort of being it's, the number one challenge. Yeah, it's going to be a big hurdle. Um, but out of the West, I'm not convinced. I think it'll be one of the LA teams will make it to the finals, but I'm not convinced they'll have the goods to take it all the way. So. Oh, man. The Aragon wraps in six, like last year. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Well, I promised you a Matt Thomas jersey, so if the, if the Raptors win, <laughs> you can expect that. Right. <laughs> awesome. I'll hold you to that. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I think the insight's been really valuable for you know, dental students or even young dentists listening who are considering the specialty, not only just from the surgical standpoint or from specializing, but I think the mindset stuff, I think the, the, the route to excellence that you mentioned of looking at every case as if it's like a family member. I think it's like really, you can apply that to anything that you do and it'll make you just do better work as a result of that naturally over time. So I think that Absolutely. like self-accountability is a great way of uh, progressing. So uh, thank you for yeah. that tip and thanks for coming on. I'm excited to uh, see where you go with your, your career. And I think one of the beauty of these types of things that have, the podcast is you can look back and hopefully I'll send you a copy of this in 10 years and uh, you can see you know, where things have, how things have changed. It'd be, uh, be pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me, Evan. I've really enjoyed the chat and um, hopefully we can catch up in person soon. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbedentist.com. Have a great day.